Well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to do a quick self-test. If you could grab your worship guide and then grab the pin in front of you. We're going to do a little drawing this morning. I was the kid in elementary school that hated drawing, so I feel for those of you who in here are that way. All right, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to draw the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? The word is hell. What comes to mind? Draw what comes to your mind. I'll give you a couple seconds. I'll give you a, a couple more seconds here. All right. Well, I'd imagine a lot of you on your papers have little men with uh, little horns. Yeah, you got right there. He's got it. A little fork tail, a pitchfork. Maybe there's some demons that have people in uh, cages, or maybe there's a lake of fire, or maybe there's nine rings. Well, my contention uh, this morning is this. Much of our ideas about hell come from this book rather than this book. See, this is Dante's Inferno. It's part of his divine comedy written in the 14th century. This book is a fictional tale of Dante being escorted through hell by Virgil, the famous Roman orator. And this book came out in three parts, and it was lurid, it was grotesque, and it was a sensation in its day. Man, it had nothing on Star Wars for us. And if it wasn't... Uh, as influential enough, you'll see some pictures on the screen. A guy came later in the, in the 19th century named Gustave Doré. Gustave is on the right. Dante is on the left. This guy wrote or drew and carved out a series of carvings um, illustrating Dante's Inferno. And you may not realize you've seen Gustave Doré's work, but you definitely have. So my hope this morning... As we look at the phrase from the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, my hope is that we will have a better understanding of what this means from this book rather than this book. All right? So we're going to be looking at John chapter 19 and chapter 20 today as we look at the section of the Apostles' Creed he descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Before we get started, I do want to ask this question. Why do I get all the hard topics? <laughs> like, it's just me. I'm always getting the hard stuff. Anyway, all right. There are two obstacles that we're going to face this morning, the next 35 minutes, um, that uh, we can't overcome, but we can at least recognize. The first is that there are many, many, many misconceptions of our view of the afterlife but this, that this message cannot possibly address. Okay, the second is there are a lot of different views on this section of the creed. And we'll talk in a minute on all the different views. And my message this morning cannot address every single issue. Even um, today, there's a you know, Pastor Rick, he holds a different view of uh, this passage of the creed than myself and Pastor Chad. So again, we can't address all the issues, but if you do have questions, 
emailed them to us, rickduncan at cvconline.org. He'd be happy to answer those for you. All right, so if you follow along with me this morning, I think you will come away with two results. One is you will have a clear understanding of what this phrase means. And two, you'll have greater reason to trust in Jesus Christ, okay? So, did Jesus descend into a world of pitchforks and red men and scurrying demons? No. But understood properly, did Jesus really descend into hell? My answer is yes, sort of, okay? So before we get going, let me pray for our time, and then we'll jump into John chapter 19. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you for the millions and hundreds of millions of people that are gathering this morning and are even reciting the creed, who are our brothers and sisters. So Lord, we are reminded that this small place in the globe is relatively insignificant But in your eyes, you care so much for every single person in this room. So I pray for those in this room that maybe have not put their faith and trust in you, that today they will recognize what you have done on the cross for them, and they will put their faith and trust in Jesus. And for those who have already trusted in you, Lord, we want to trust in you more and in every area of our lives. So help us through your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Pop down to verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In the next few minutes, I want to give us a flyover of the various views of he descended into hell. And then I'd like to share with you one specific view that seems to be the most faithful and has also been the view most Christians have held throughout the Christian church, okay? And I'm going to list these views from least held to most held throughout uh, the 2,000 years of Christian history. So um, let's uh, begin by, again, looking at the... uh, Four views. And, and also, before we jump in, my notes will be um, posted on our blog. So don't try to, you know, f- cover your notes page with notes. They'll all be on the blog, as well as Pastor Rick Duncan is going to provide uh, his uh, angle on what this uh, phrase means. 
So the passages that the descent hinges on is Acts 2.27, Romans 10.6-7, Ephesians 4.8-9, 1 Peter 3.18-20, Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12, among others. So the first view, and the one least held throughout history, is the discard view. There are some modern scholars that think this phrase got inadvertently slipped into the creed later than the other articles, or that the descent is simply unbiblical. So we should take out this section of the creed. And again, this is the view held by the fewest Christians throughout history, but held by some really reputable theologians of our day, including Wayne Grudem. Maybe you're familiar with that name. So that's the discard view. The next view is the buried view. This view says that the descent was simply an illustrative way of describing the burial of Jesus in the earth. So he descended into hell simply means he was buried. The third view uh, I call the second chance view. So there are some, especially among the Eastern Orthodox um, faith, that believe Jesus went down to the place of the dead to preach the gospel to those who did not believe before Christ came. For example, those people who laughed at Noah for building the ark. This is the view that Jesus went down to the place of the dead and kind of gave them a second chance. Like, hey guys, I'm here, you know, believe in me. And here is the fourth view, the pain on the cross view. Again, this view is certainly legitimate. It is certainly valid. Um, And it says that Jesus experienced descended into hell in that he experienced physical, psychological, and spiritual anguish of hell on the cross. So that he descended into hell was Jesus's suffering, physical, spiritual, emotional, that he experienced on the cross. This is the view held by John Calvin, famous reformer. It's also the view held by Matt Chandler, the guy that does our um, workbook through our life groups that we're going through this semester. And this is also the view of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a tool developed in the 16th century to teach the faith. And it says that the descent was, quote, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before. And this is the, also the, uh, mentioned earlier, the, the view Pastor Rick holds. So the pain on the cross was hell, was the descent into hell. All right, before I present to you the kind of historic view, let's look at these four views in sequence and kind of uh, assess them for their validity. You shouldn't just take my word for it. You shouldn't just take my word on anything, right? You should uh, be self-feeder, just like we have on the wall. We want you to be self-feeder. But let me get the ball rolling in how we understand these views. So the discard view, many scholars recognize that it would seem odd um, that over the past 40 years that scholars have taken the discard view, that um, it's, it's a, it's, it seems uh, presumptuous to assume previous 19 centuries of Christian theological analysis is somehow incorrect, and now we've come to the proper place on this uh, phrase. So that's, that's the the kind of an assessment of the discard view. There's the buried view. You know, though it is true that Jesus was buried, 
the creed mentions Jesus' burial in the previous phrase. So it would seem odd to just restate what was already mentioned in a kind of an illustrative way, meaning he just died, was buried, descended into hell, would just be saying the same thing. Well, there's a second chance view. Now, this view seems to go against some of the clear teaching of Scripture in a number of biblical passages, especially Hebrews 9, 27, that says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that face judgment. Also, there are undertones that inadvertently teach in this view that everyone goes to, to heaven. Um, but we know that's not the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, here's the pain on the cross view. Now, this view is certainly legitimate, but it doesn't seem to make the most sense for two reasons. The first reason is this. It disrupts the chronological order of the creed. So if the descent is the agony on the cross, wouldn't the descent be positioned after the crucifixion rather than after the burial? Meaning, wouldn't the creed read, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he descended to hell, dead and buried, the third day he rose again from the dead. No, but rather, the, suffer, the uh, descended into hell comes after the burial. And secondly, it doesn't seem to address the verses that point to something other than merely the agony of the cross. Certainly, Jesus suffered physical, emotional, spiritual agony, agony weak beyond our comprehension. But there's, uh, there was a number of passages that point to something in addition to the suffering on the cross. Now, I'm not saying that those views are somehow stupid or dumb and heretical, I'm, but I, do, I am saying is this, is I do not believe it comes to grips with the, the scriptural account of what happened after it is finished to he is risen. So let's look at this view. It's called the place of the dead view. Again, this is the majority view throughout the history of the faith. And this is the view that upon Jesus' death, Jesus actually died and went to the place of the dead. The same place that Moses went, the same place that David went, which we confusingly call hell. See, the problem is we don't have a biblical view of what the word hell is talking about. When we think of hell, we go here, or maybe we go to the, the, the stuff that your neighbor puts out in his front lawn for Halloween. That's what we think of rather than the scriptures. So in order to understand what the Apostles' Creed means in he descended into hell, we need to understand the language of the Apostles' Creed. See, the Apostles' Creed was first written in Latin. And the word we translate hell comes from the Latin descendit ad inferna. Inferno, what Dante gets uh, the, uh, his title of uh, the Inferno of his book. Inferna is the Latin translation of the Greek word Hades. Hades, maybe you've heard that word before. See, in the New Testament, there are two wor uh, Greek words that we translate for hell traditionally. One is Gehenna. 
Gehenna is actually a location. It's a valley outside the city of Jerusalem where people would dump their trash, dump dead bodies and bones, and there was a constant fire and burning. And Jesus used that, and elsewhere in the New Testament, used that as a place of punishment and as a place of judgment. This is not the hell we're talking about. The other use of, the, of hell is Hades, the Greek word Hades. And Hades points back to an Old Testament word, the word sheol. It's a Hebrew word, the word sheol. So all those things on the screen, right? <laughs> we, hell, we get from the Latin inferna. Inferna, we get from the New Testament Greek word Hades. And Hades, we get from the Old Testament Hebrew word sheol. Aren't you glad you guys came this morning? <clears throat> Okay, well, what does Sheol mean? In the Old Testament, Sheol is a general term for the place where dead people go when they die. It is described often in allegorical terms as a, a shadowy existence, not necessarily of punishment, but not necessarily of reward, but kind of a waiting area. <laughs> now, depending on your life, um, lived, there's kind of a better part, Abraham's bosom and a not so good part. But the, in the Old Testament, this term sheol is a general term describing the place of the dead. Let's look at a few passages. Psalm 88, 3. This is the psalmist saying, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to sheol. This is the Psalmist writing, you assume that he knows God, loves God, and he says he's going to Sheol. And then Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the faith, faith, after he heard the death of his son Joseph, said in Genesis 37, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So uh, Jacob said, well, my son Joseph, he's in Sheol. I'm going to die. Don't comfort me. I'm going to go to Sheol as well. And then David in Psalm 19 says that he will go to Sheol, but God will not abandon him there forever. So Sheol in the Old Testament is simply the place of the dead. So did Jesus descend into hell? A better question is this. Did Jesus descend into the place of the dead? See, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus really went. He really experienced death and he went to the place of the dead. He legitimately died. That means he experienced death. He took on death in our place in order to remove the eternal consequences of death. So Jesus fully experienced death, just like David just like Moses, and at the call of it is finished, Jesus went to the place of the dead. He gave up his spirit, his body was limp, and he descended. You see, understanding this helps us make sense of the responses of both the disciples and the devil. You see, the disciples following, 
followed along Jesus, as he carried his cross, as he was nailed to the cross, as he was lifted up, and the disciples did everything possible to keep Jesus from going to the cross, to the point of Peter grabbing a sword and whacking off the high priest's servant's ear. And so here's Jesus on the cross, crying out for ag- in agony, and his disciples are praying and waiting. Maybe Jesus is going to be just going to say, I'm done with this. I'm getting off this cross. I'm judging everybody. I'm establishing my kingdom. Jesus, they were waiting for Jesus to get off the cross. So when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the disciples thought, it's finished. It's over. This whole disciple thing, this whole Messiah thing, he's dead. He's gone. So what they do? They went and hid. They went back to their fishing boats. And I can imagine the devil. As Jesus calls out, it is finished. And as Jesus dies, the devil thinks, I won. I I did it. The Messiah thing is over. The son of God is dead. I win. Well, you know what? Both of them were wrong. Look with me in John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, verse 19, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and showed them his side. Then the disciples were glad. I think that's an understatement. When they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus' death paid for sins. But if that was the end of the story, then death wins. If Jesus died and went to the place of the dead and stayed dead, then death and sin and the devil win and the, and the cross was the crowning achievement of Satan. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Look, I, I don't know how long Jesus was down there. You know, you know t- he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Look, I don't know how long he was down there, but he was long enough to get the keys and rip off the gates. Because in Revelation chapter one, the first thing that he tells John in his revelation, he says this, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. You see, Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. He ripped off the gates of hell. He got the keys. And he slapped the devil in the face. And he arose. He arose. That's right. Amen. And in Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and what? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus died for your sins. And he rose again. That means that when you die, if you have faith and trust in Jesus, 
you will be made alive again. You see, in Christ's work, in the place of the dead, and then the resurrection, he assured for us, he purchased us, he promised us that our greatest enemy, which is sin and death, no longer has a hold on you. Say you're here with your spouse. And maybe, maybe you're here with your spouse. Maybe reach over and give them a little squeeze on the hand. Love you, babe. Maybe you're, maybe you're here with a, a, a friend. Give them a little head nod or, hey, I love you, but bro, you know. Say you have the perfect marriage. Say your marriage is like the stuff that fairy tales are made of. With a lot of chuckles in this room. Man, I expect that. Um, Say it's, per- say, hypothetically, say it's perfect and everything is wonderful. You do realize that your greatest hope in this world with your relationship with your spouse is that one day you're going to weep over their coffin or they will weep over your coffin. So even though Christ has paid for since he rose again, death still has a hold on the reality of this world. And in my position, there's a lot of funerals we do, a lot of people who are going through that process of dying. And I will say, by this time next year, we will do a funeral for someone in this room, probably multiple people in this room. But the fact that Jesus died, descended to the place of the dead and rose again, means that in every single experience you and I will face, he knows what it's like. Only Jesus knows what it's like to die and raise again. You see, every single one of us will face death and we, there are few people who don't fear death. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have to. Because even when you face death in the face, and remember, even when you go through death to life, you have someone who's been there before to carry you the rest of the way. And because Christ paid for our sins on the cross, and he liber- in, in Ephesians 4, it says he liberated a host of captives. He freed a host of captives. That means when you die, You don't go to some nether world. You don't go to some shadowy existence. You go to heaven to be with Christ. You see, Jesus knows what it's like in everything you will experience. Are you physically suffering? Jesus knows what that's like. Are you estranged from a family member? Jesus knows what that's like. Do you not know what you're going to do financially next week? Jesus knows what what that's like. Are you staring the reality of your death in the face? Jesus knows what it's like. And you can trust him. So in in one of the privileges of my position as a pastor is I get to spend a lot of time with young couples who are expecting their first child. And it's always a great time of excitement for that couple. And um, 
often my wife Deborah and I will have them over to the house. And one tip of advice that I give to the father in expecting uh, to be there at the birth of their child, I tell them this, do not give your wife any advice during labor. Look, okay, I, I, I don't care how many books you've read, how many buddies you've talked to, you don't know what it's like. And I tell you what a comfort I had was when Deborah was in the, the, the delivering our children, there was a nurse on the left and a nurse on the right who've had babies themselves. And they know what it's like. You see, you can trust Jesus because he knows what it's like. And you know, we talk a lot about faith in Jesus Christ here. We talk about, hey, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to have faith in Jesus. Do you know what we're talking about? That means trusting Jesus with your death. Because if you could trust Jesus with your death, you could trust him with your life. You see, so often we get confused that if we can, we, we can, we can rely on Jesus in certain things, but we can't rely on some other things. Like it's funny, you'll talk to people and they trust in Jesus with their family, with their death, but they can't trust him with their finances. Look, if you could trust Jesus with your death, you can trust him with your life. So this part of the creed, I think is so important for us because it is a reminder that Jesus knows what it's like and we can trust him. And the second thing is, is that in the descent, Jesus opened heaven for sinners like you and me. Ephesians 4.8 says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You see, in the Old Testament, we see these uh, Old Testament saints resisting and, 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 and loathing the idea of death. They try to push it away at every thought and in every verse. But then we see in the New Testament where Paul says, well, absent with the body is present with the Lord. Do you know why? Because Jesus holds the key of death in Hades. There is nothing there that Satan has a hold on in our lives. We are now brought to heaven when we die, if we have faith and trust in Jesus. We don't have to fear death anymore because Jesus was defeated, has defeated death for our sake. Let me close our time with this. Here's a, you'll see a quote on the screen by a fourth century pastor, Caesarius of Arlene's. And he said this about this um, part of the creed. He says, because this lion, that is Christ of the tribe of Judah, descended victoriously to hell, snatching us from the mouth of the hostile lion. Thus, he hunts us to save us. He captures us to release us. He leads us captive to restore us liberated to our native land. There are some of you in this room, you feel like God is after you in a bad way. Your health, your finances, your family, it just seems to be an onslaught constantly. And you are thinking, how could God love me if he allows this to happen to me? There's no way God's a loving God. Look at my life. That's evidence. The reality is, 
Christ is hunting you down, but he's hunting you down to free you. You are running headlong into destruction and Christ is hunting you to capture you, to free you, to bring you to your native land. Christ is hunting you down so that you can become who God designed you to be. Apart from faith in Jesus, trust that you can give Jesus your death. You will never experience the reality and the joy that a believer can say is that I don't fear death. But if you do not have a relationship with Christ, if you have not trusted Jesus for your death, you have everything to fear. So this morning, why not give your life to Christ? Why not trust him? Why not say, Jesus, I trust you. I want to give you my death. I trust you with my death. You can have my life. What's holding you back? I encourage you, if that's you, if you feel hunted, give your life to Jesus because he will hunt you to free you. He will capture you to release you. And his lo he loves you so much, he was willing to go to hell to get you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would we thank you for your son. We thank you for the work he did on the cross. And Lord, for those in this room who are resisting, who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, and who think, I don't know about all this. Father, even now, would your Holy Spirit pound on the doors of their heart? Lord, would something happen? Would they not be able to resist you? And would they put their faith and trust in Jesus? And Lord, as us, as believers, Lord, we trust you. Lord, help us to trust you with every part of our life. And help us to trust you with our death, every part. Lord, we want to be a people. We want to be individuals who have the courage to stare the hard things of life in the face and say, hey, I know who's come before me. He's got this under control. So Father, we love you. We thank you for your work that you did through your son on the cross. We pray this in his name, amen.